One of the most contentious questions in the church today is that concerning spiritual gifts. Now, aside from the question, the very contentious question, as to whether God continues to grant the sign gifts today, and that would be such as the gift of speaking in tongues, the gift of working miracles, the gift of speaking prophetic revelation, there is also the question as to how a Christian can even know what spiritual gift he or she has. Now, I remember one church I was a member of uh, years and years ago passing out what uh, could be likened to an SAT test booklet to every member of the congregation. And we had to answer some 90 or so questions out of that booklet on a Scantron sheet. You know what those are where you have to fill in the bubbles, fill them in completely with a number two pencil, and then we turned them back in. The results gave us the likelihood of which gift or gifts that we might have individually by displaying percentages beside each gift. Some gifts there may be as low as a 0% percentage and other gifts you might see up into the 70s and the 80s. Now, as nice as that sounds and as neat of an idea as that was, determining our spiritual giftedness isn't quite as easy as taking what would amount to a psychological examination. It might get us a little further along in thinking about certain things, and it might get some things right. As it happens, I personally did score high on teaching, so I thought maybe teaching was uh, the way I should go. But it also might or we also might skew our results with just whatever mood we're in that day, or by being less than honest with ourselves with some of the answers, or by just being confused by the questions. For instance, someone in an entirely different context had to tell me I should consider leadership. And that kind of got me thinking more along the lines of a pastoral route. Now, the only thing that we can say for certain is that every Christian has a gifting. That gifting is going to be unique. It's not going to look exactly like the gifting that someone else might have in a similar category. And it is given by the Lord and hit by his sovereign choice. Now, such considerations are important for the practical operation of the church. And, of course, that's where we are in Ephesians. We are in the practical section. Chapter 4 begins that practical section. And last week we began by looking at what it means to be a church with a worthy walk. A worthy walk for a church is one that is unified. We saw... The characteristics of those who are living out this command, characteristics such as uh, kindness and, and humility. And we saw that there are theological 
points which unite us, a creed, if you will, which brings us together. And so our takeaway was that we are supposed to be walking in unity as a local body of believers. And that begins this practical section. Now this requires much of us. And that's why Paul devoted three chapters before this, before chapter 4. It just so happens there are three chapters before chapter 4. And he devoted those three chapters to theology, to doctrine, to the gospel, so that we would know how the Lord empowers us to walk the worthy walk as a church. See, Christ always works within us to achieve that which he commands. In fact, he demonstrated the characteristics we talked about. He is the demonstration of humility, right? He is the demonstration of meekness. He is the demonstration of patience. And then he indwells us by his spirit. And so we can have the ability to walk according to what he commands. He gives us grace. And he gives us gifts, as we see here. It all starts with Jesus. <laughs> and so when we talk about spiritual gifts, we must first consider that, that it is Christ who is endowing his church. It's Christ who is endowing his church. And that's what this entire section is about that we're entering. And we could talk about the section as being verses 7 through 16, really. And we'll talk about this as, as we move along because this is really what, what many consider to be a very long sentence, a, yet another long sentence in the Greek language. And so dividing this up can be challenging, but we'll choose to divide it up conceptually over the course of the next few sermons here. We'll talk about the giving of the gifts. We'll talk about the gifts themselves. We'll talk about the purpose of the gifts. As for today, we'll be looking at how Christ gifts his church. How Christ gifts his church. We'll follow this up in a couple of weeks with what Christ gifts his church. And then after that, we will follow up with why Christ gifts his church. And so how, what, and why are the next three sermons. Today we're considering the how. How Christ gifts his church. And this allows us to focus on the more general question of spiritual gifts. As we proceed, we'll note that Christ distributes them to each of us. He distributes them to each of us. And he wins the gifts that he gives to the church. Let's look at the first major point here. Verse 7, Christ distributes to each of us gifts for his church. Christ distributes to each of us gifts for his church. Verse 7 says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We've been talking about unity, but I want you to take note of what could be a very mild contrast in this verse with the previous one. In this verse, 
Paul speaks of, quote, each one. But in the previous verse, he spoke about all. But that's not so much of a contrast because he's still talking about an objective reality for all Christians, right? He speaks of a subjective experience, of course, that we all encounter, but there's unity in that each one of us has a unique experience with the Lord. That's something that can bring us together as we consider that God is working something unique in each one of our hearts. That is something that unites us, that God is working on all of us and working in all of us. As Paul wrote in, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 11 there in 1 Corinthians 12 says this, one, the one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Now, what does all this mean? This means that each one of us is promised a specific kind of gifting. We're not told what the gifting is, but we are promised a kind of gifting. And this is something that is true of all the church. Christ is not just giving gifts to, say, the Jewish believers or to just the Gentile believers. He is giving gifts to all believers as he wills. To think about this in another way, these gifts properly utilized promote unity within the church. And that's ultimately what we're going to see as we go through the rest of this, of this section here. Verse 16, for instance, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And so there is a, there is a sense in which all of the parts, when they're working together properly, it serves to build up the entire body. And so he gives these gifts to promote unity, to promote love. In fact, the individual practicing of a person's gift, whether it's a, his gift or her gift, has a unique role in accomplishing the unity that God called us to. By the way, this is a, another reason why it's important to be in church as often as we are able, as often as God allows. Because each believer forms just a part of the whole, and that means when someone's absent, I'm not calling anyone out, but I am saying that the whole body does suffer from the absence of one. So it is so important for all of us to be together as often as we can. I'm not talking about when God providentially hinders you. Uh, you know, obviously there are times when we can't be together, but there are times when we can be and we're just not. And that is something that we should correct before the Lord. Now, as we think about these things, we say, okay, I can see that I'm part of a whole and that God is perhaps using me as part of this whole, but what's my gift? <laughs> well, see, here's the thing. We, we run into two problems when we're trying to answer that question. 
The first one is this. We can take the spiritual gift passages and compare them together. And those passages would be Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10, here in Ephesians 4, specifically verse 11, and 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. So we can take those passages, we can compare them, and what we see is that we have difficulty if we are trying to develop a definitive list of the gifts. Because these passages, rather than just give us the listing of the gifts, they seem to give us something that is more akin to general categories of gifts, with each list differing according to the purpose of the author. And so that creates difficulty. We look, for instance, at 1 Corinthians 12, and we see a lot of gifts listed there, but we look at 1 Peter 4, and we see only listed there gifts of speaking and gifts of service. And so we definitely see categories in that case. Indeed, it doesn't appear that an individual Christian only has one gift that's on the list. Usually, you have some mixture of gifts on the list. And so it may not even be useful to say, I have this gift, when in fact you have maybe 80% of this gift, but also a smattering of other gifts that makes your particular gift look unique, something that's specific to you. MacArthur uses the comparison of fingerprints or snowflakes, all of which, of course, are unique, to demonstrate the uniqueness of gifting. It's just going to look different in every person, how it comes out. And here's a second problem that we have. That's only the first problem. The second problem we have is when we miss church. Because as Warren Wearsby notes here, how does the believer discover and develop his gifts? Well, here it is, by fellowshipping with other Christians in the local assembly. Christians are not to live in isolation, for after all, they are members of the same body. See, a computer can't determine your spiritual gifts, and they can't be practiced outside of the church. The only way you can know your gifts is to get plugged into church and be involved. And as you're involved, you'll quickly find out. Maybe someone very lovingly will tap you on the shoulder. I don't think this is where you belong. <laughs> Hopefully that's done out of love and in a very tactful way. Or they may tap you on the shoulder and say, you're who we've been waiting for. <laughs> and you may not have even realized that. It just happens as you serve. And maybe as you serve, you see other areas and you say, I can do that. And so you jump in to that area as well. In fact, as we think about these things, spiritual gifts only come by the decision of Christ. It's not necessarily something that, that, that we even choose or that we can identify as clearly as we sometimes think we can. You know, sometimes we 
can say for relative certainty what a gifting is, but we can't always say what it is because it's actually Christ who is developing a gift within a person, and he does it within his own timetable. We read here that it is an act of his grace, which, like salvation, is unmerited on our parts. It's not like some people are teachers because they were just so much more spiritual than other people. That's not necessarily the case. Other people uh, who serve in other areas of the church which may not be in the limelight perhaps have more reward waiting for them than those who are in front of people because of what God has called them to. Christ decides the measure, not man, and he sends his Holy Spirit accordingly. This is the measure that Christ sovereignly wills, and so this should direct our thinking. As, uh, as, as one commentator notes, believers' gifts are not determined by their preferences, inclinations, natural abilities, merit, or any other personal consideration, but solely by God's sovereign and gracious will. That's how, God, that's how our gifts are determined. It may be that God uses us, in fact, in ways that are uncomfortable to us. You may find that you are in the nursery changing a diaper, and that is not so fun to you, but that is something that God is using and that is needed within the church. And within God's grace, you are there within His providence. You are there. And if I can just be transparent and honest with you for a moment, in myself, I am not naturally an extroverted person. This is something I struggle with. And I would selfishly stay away from the spotlight and from other people, to be honest. I'd be happy to live the life of an introvert. But Christ had other plans. And so Christ uses us as he wills. He gifts the church. And to gift his church, he will despoil his enemies to do it. So this is the next point. Christ wins the gifts he gives to the church. Christ wins the gifts that he gives to the church. Let's look at verses 8 through 10 here. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now the expression, he ascended, what does that mean? Or what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Now this section may prove confusing. And I understand that. Because as I read it the first time as a younger believer, I was thinking, what in the world does this have to do with gifts? Because like verse 7 talks about gifts. Verse 11, when we finally get to verse 11, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets. So here we have the giving of the gifts. But in the middle, it seems that there is something completely unrelated to 
the giving of the gifts. But what Paul is doing here is giving the reason why Christ can distribute gifts. And the answer, interestingly enough, centers around his ascension, which is part of the gospel message. We talked about this earlier. The fact that, uh, th that he rose up to the right hand of God and is currently interceding on our behalf. This is recorded, of course, uh, historically in Acts 1, verses 9 through 11. And there we read, of course, you can turn there if you like. I'll go ahead and just read it from my screen, from my notes here. Acts 1, verses 9 through 11. And after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white, or two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. I'm always amazed as I read that particular account because who are the two men in white clothing who just suddenly appear next to him? These are angels, right? You would think that you would notice a couple of angels to suddenly appear next to you unless something else has your enraptured attention, right? And of course, as they're watching Jesus being taken up into heaven, they're more focused on that than the fact that two angels appear next to them. <laughs> it's important that he was taken up. This is part of the work. He, he is now making intercession for the saints. It shows him to be victorious. And so let's, let's in fact, consider these facts. The first one is that he is... For his is a victorious ascension. His is a victorious ascension. Which is why in verse 8, when it says he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, Paul is quoting a psalm there. And if you have Bibles that kind of set that apart or put it in all capital letters or bold letters, uh, you can see that that is actually a quotation from the Old Testament. In this case, Psalm 68.18. And Psalm 68.18 says this, You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. Now, why is Paul quoting this? Well, Paul is quoting this psalm, and he quotes it the way he does uh, both. <laughs> let, me, let me put it this way. The why he quotes it and the way he quotes it are both debatable. He obviously applies the psalm to Christ. And as we consider for a moment what, why Paul states he led captive a host of captives, one explanation that's given often is that, well, Christ is victorious over Satan. He's victorious over the powers of darkness. 
Colossians 2.15 says this. It says, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And so through the cross, through the burial, through the resurrection, and the successful ascension of Christ back into heaven, he did, in fact, win victory over Satan. And that's certainly, in my view, part of what Paul means here. Especially based on what he says in verse 8, or excuse me, verse, uh, verse 9. But Paul also probably meant something more, and this something more is perhaps something more to the point. A minority of commentaries, Calvin, MacArthur, a few others, posit that Paul's referring to those who were former prisoners of Satan and who are now prisoners of the Lord. This may include the Old Testament saints and would include the Old Testament saints, but also believers through history in his one act of ascension. In other words, Christ rescues the yet unsaved in his ascension. In that case, we're talking about people. We're not talking about gifts. So, what were we talking about? We're talking about gifts, but here we're talking about people. It, well, if we are to think of Christ as a conquering king despoiling the enemy, we then have a New Testament application of Psalm 68. Just as the Lord defended and protected Israel in the past, plundering his enemies and turning them into a blessing for his people, Christ takes the spoils of his warfare and he gives gifts to bless his people, the church. In fact, there are even those like Paul who might have currently been enemies of the cross, but then he gloriously converts those people creating defectors from the domain of darkness. And they now join the domain of light. See, he knows who are his, and he will sovereignly turn them to his side. After Pentecost, we read in Acts 2, verses, verse 47, Acts 2, 47, that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord was adding to their number. And we've already seen in Ephesians 1 that salvation is entirely of God's predestined choice. And so what do we have? We have Jesus as he is dying on the cross for his people. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. He, he's, he dies on the cross. He's buried. He rises again from the grave. And then he ascends into heaven. He is taking those who had been captive. And now he is taking those captives into captivity, into his his captivity. We're now no longer slaves of the devil. We're now slaves of Christ. And so he has rescued us. And he can take those who were formerly of the domain of darkness, whether they be atheists or those who follow a false religion of some kind or whoever else, even those who grew up in church but never experienced the glorious gospel of Christ for themselves. He takes all of them and he then turns them into someone, into people who can bless his church. 
And by the way, that's all of our stories. <laughs> that's every one of our stories. So this seems to be the context in which he gives gifts to men. He's victorious over Satan and sin, and he leads captives captive in his train. He then chooses to give some men as specific gifts for the church, like we read in verse 11. Some are apostles, some are prophets, some are evangelists, some are pastors and teachers. And we'll talk more about that when we get to verse 11. But before we get there, let's consider a bit more about his ascension and the giving of the gifts. And so, as we get to verses 9 and 10 here, we read that he distributes gifts because of his ascension. Since it's been a minute, I'll go ahead and reread that. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. The fact that Christ descended and was so victorious is the reason why he can endow the church as he does. And so it starts with the descent of Christ into, quote, the lower parts of the earth. Now, what does that mean? Well, like everything else, it can be disputable here. There can be several concepts which Paul may have intended here. He could be just simply intending to refer to the simple, if we could say the word simple here, the simple incarnation of Christ. Of course, there's nothing simple about the incarnation of Christ, but that may be all that he's referring to here. Because the simple parts of the earth, or, I'm sorry, the lower parts of the earth could be translated the lower parts which are the earth. And so that is a possible translation here. Some verses use the expression, in fact, like in Isaiah 44, 23 and Psalm 139:15, to refer to objects on the surface of the planet, the lower parts of the earth. And so we who are on the lower parts of the earth should praise the Lord. So it's, it may just refer to him coming to earth then. And that understanding fits, fits with the next verse, which seems to contrast the heavens and the earth. And that's a view that many Bible teachers hold. And if that's all you believe about this text, I think you're on solid ground. There is a, another possibility here. Scripture uses the expression, lower parts of the earth, to refer to the grave. Um, places like Psalm 63, for instance, uses this in reference to death. And there's the similar expression, the heart of the earth, also speaks of death. Matthew 12, 40, Jesus talks about that, the heart of the earth. The, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. That's um, talking about death. That would, of course, fit well with his incarnation, where he came in real flesh and shed real blood on a cross as a sacrifice. 
as such his ascension into heaven, the perfect tabernacle, indicates the finished and successful work of Christ's sacrifice. So this could be emphasizing then the sacrifice, the death of Christ. So I think of the Apostles' Creed where it says that he, 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 he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He died. Well, if, you, if you're crucified, of course you die. And then he is buried. Well, if he died, of course he is buried. I, oh, I guess you don't have to bury a dead body. But it seems to emphasize the fact that he well died. It seems like it just keeps saying he died, he died, he died. Because it is important for us to see that. Because his resurrection is a true resurrection. Now that's the second option. The third expression, or the third option, is that this expression could mean the depths of the earth referring past the grave to the domain of damnation itself. Now, I am not talking about the unbiblical view. Now I want to emphasize that. There is an unbiblical view out there that Jesus went to hell and he suffered for our sins there. That is absolutely unbiblical. That's not taught in Scripture anywhere. But there is a view that perhaps you might see is similar, but it's, it doesn't have anything to do with him suffering for our sins, wherein he willingly descends and puts himself on display to the spirits. And so many church fathers held to this view. They linked Ephesians 4.9 here with 1 Peter 3.19, which says this, He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now this is disputed by many good teachers, but Scripture does appear to teach. I know some disagree on this point. And that's okay. Uh, you'll find out one day or another. Uh, and scripture does appear to teach that fallen angels are imprisoned there because they attempted to thwart God's plan by cohabitating with women in Genesis chapter 6. Now in this view, Jesus goes to, to these uh, imprisoned angels, these angels who thought that they at one point had victory over the Lord, and then he shows himself to these wretched creatures and pronounces his triumph over them. And so that is a third view there. Now, these three views, I want to say, are not mutually exclusive. Christ could have certainly, uh, or Christ certainly did descend and, and become incarnate, taking on human flesh. He certainly was crucified and buried, descending into the grave, and then descended into hell itself, proclaiming his victory over the imprisoned powers of darkness there. And so as such, MacArthur writes, the intent of the phrase in this letter is not to point to a specific place, but to refer to the depth of the incarnation. In other words, Jesus went as low as possible. And this is in contrast to verse 10. Because we read there, not this. We don't read there, he who descended is himself also who ascended back into the heavens. What do we read there? We read that he ascended far above all the heavens. The point isn't how many heavens there are, by the way. 
but that Christ is above them all. As Paul said back in Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 21, he said, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. Wow! Hebrews 4.14 says that Jesus is a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Hebrews 7.26 says that he's exalted above the heavens. That means Christ is supreme. He is over all. He's not just in the heavens, he's over the heavens. And so he descended as low as he could. And then he ascended as high as possible. Higher than any earthly or heavenly power. And this comes out in the latter half of the verse, so that he might fill all things. As low as it goes and as high as it goes, so that he might fill all things. This could speak of the omnipresence of Christ through the Spirit, of course, such as indwelling the, indwelling the hearts of believers. Chapter 3, verse 17, we talked about that, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We're with believers in their decision concerning church discipline, right? Matthew, uh, Matthew 18, 20, which is not a verse about just meeting together randomly, although we could perhaps see some application there, but it is specifically attached to church discipline. He's there in the midst. He's there with us in the, church, in the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, he is here with us. He's here with us. And He's in heaven. He is all in all. I mean, we could even think of the consummation of all things in Christ. He, he's, he's going to fill so much that one day He's going to just fill it all. Everything. See, His current filling speaks of His sovereignty. He is sovereign. And we'll talk more about this when we get to chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 18. Where it says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It doesn't just speak of volume. I mean, that might seem like that's what it means, be filled. Well, that's usually what we mean. We go out and we fill our gas tanks. We, 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 we place gasoline into the entire volume of the gas tank. But rather, what this means here is to be controlled by the Spirit. Be filled, as in have His influence in every part of your life. Allow Him to control your actions. See, this is the Christ who desires to fill the whole body. Chapter 1, we talked about that. He gives gifts to the church. Because He's so highly exalted, He's the head of the church. He controls the church. It's His church. He gives gifts as He desires for the church to have. And this all points to a time when He's just going to control everything. When He's just going to fill everything. 
<laughs> That's where we're moving. Wow. Now, I don't know if you thought about all of this when you think about, what's my spiritual gift? <laughs> That, that's, I'm not saying that's not, not an important question. But you, you have to see that question as part of the greater whole. What Christ is doing to glorify himself. The Son of God descended to earth, taking on human flesh. He lived a perfect life in the place of those he would claim. And then he died a perfect death for them on a cross. He was buried, and then he harrowed the halls of hell, parading his victory over the deeds of darkness. And then he was raised from the grave, victorious over even death itself. And then he ascended, not just back to his previous position, but in triumphant, triumphant parade over even the glories of heaven. And in doing so, he seats all the previous captives, which would include you and I, in heavenly places with him. Those he would save. Those who are now captive to his will. He's victorious over everything. And with that, he turns around, taking those he won, and he gives them back as gifts to his church. He won the right to do this. He promised that he would send the Spirit. And boy, did he. And <laughs> he gave gifts with the Spirit. What does the Supreme Christ give to the church? Well, we'll see specific gifts in verse 11. And we'll talk about that next time. But note now that he can give you gifts. Why? Because of everything he's done. Because of everything he's accomplished. Because of who he is.